Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week needs very little introduction. He's a journalist and an author of an upcoming book. In fact, it's out already, The Madness of Crowds. Douglas Murray, welcome back to Trigonometry. It's a great pleasure to be back with you. Uh, well, here we are. We spoke to you only a few months ago, and it seems things have evolved not only with you, but with the <laughs> world in general. They sure have. And uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about the book, which is absolutely fantastic, I recommend it to anyone who's watching or listening to this, is some of the bigger issues behind what you're talking about, because you break it down, you go into the gay, the women, the trans, the race stuff. Uh, but the bigger issue, I think, behind what you talk about in the book is we now... We almost, it's not that we don't, we live in a post-truth society, we almost live in an anti-truth society now, in a society in which saying things which are patently true, scientifically verifiable, mm. has become dangerous. Yes, yes, that's right. That's, that's, um, that's really why I wanted to write The Madness of Crowds, because I'm aware, just as you're aware, that there's an awful lot of things that we're expected to believe, and certainly a lot of things we're expected to say, which basically people don't believe. And... Uh, I think that's a very unhealthy thing for society to do. I think it's an unhealthy state for any group of people to be in. But that's that's good terrain for a writer, like it is for a comedian, because you know I, I've I've developed this realization while writing the book that almost everybody is vulnerable. Um, when I started writing the madness of crowds and looking into all of the you know, intersectionalism and all of this madness. Uh, 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 I, you know, I, I knew how I knew it had spilled out a long time ago from the American Academy, from Berkeley, and these places. I knew it had gone a long way into the popular culture. I knew all of that. One of the things I was surprised at was the extent to which it has just washed across the corporate world. You know, washed across. You know, places which you would think, you know, you, you might not like, but you would have thought would have been grown-ups. You know, oh my God, no, they've all imbibed the whole thing, and. What I realized was then that almost nobody could speak the truth. Nobody could even think aloud, uh, apart from, as it turns out, the small number of people who don't have a wobbly hierarchy above us. Because basically, in this society at the moment, if you have a hierarchy above you, it is very likely to be wobbly. It is likely to, if a new demand is made of everyone today, to do it by tomorrow. And if you stand up against that, you're toast. So this weird thing is emerged where people who don't have a wobbly hierarchy are the only people able to say what everybody knows. And that turns out mainly to consist of writers and comedians. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a perilous thing for a society. <laughs> I mean, you know, we might be really screwed if, if, if that's who we've got to rely on, but... I think it is. I think it is. And I think that people like you, people like me, have a strange, disproportionate burden and indeed duty uh, to keep speaking. And I'm just thrilled by the fact that that is happening. Uh, you know, in, just in recent weeks, we've seen Dave Chappelle break out on some of these things. And we've seen a few other people do it. And, you know, f fine. If... If, if the adults in the room all go mad and they tell the young people to go mad as well, then maybe it's just a few comedians and writers who can say, mm -mm, not doing it. 
Do you think that this, in a way, is a sort of divide and conquer, especially with identity politics? It pits white against black, straight against gay. Yes. In the gay community, it becomes even more fractured with the whole trans issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 L's, the L's don't get on with the G's, and the L's and the G's <laughs> are very suspicious of the B's, and all of them kind of mm, about the T's. So even the LGBT thing doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work as a, as a, as a group. Uh, I think there is. There are several things going on. And I try, in the matters of crowds, I try to explain what I think the main bits are. There is one part of this that has, is, a, is a very straightforward post-Marxist agenda, which is the working class let them down. The working class never did come up with the revolution properly. And they failed to totally transform human society. And indeed made the biggest mess in history everywhere they tried it. So the working class let the Marxists down. And they were very, I, I, again, until I was reading all the texts on this, I was surprised that, I was, I was surprised I discovered them how frank some of the Marxists were in the 80s even. Straightforward. They stated in terms, and I quote them, the working class let us down. We need a new revolutionary set of groups, and these will include women, sexual minorities, racial minorities, and we need to make them the vanguard of the revolution. So that's one group. That's one group of things that are going on. Another group I would say are people for whom this is just brute politics. You know, the people who say you're not gay if you're gay and not a revolutionary Marxist. Uh, The people who say People aren't black anymore. <laughs> I have, by the way, I, I, I give in the race chapter a set of what I just regard as being unbelievably hilarious examples of this. I think my favorite of which is you know, the assumption that black is about being political, which is such a racist <laughs> idea. And all these sort of woke figures uh, do it. Um, but my, fav- my favorite one, by the way, I should tell you, is... is um, the London School of Economics had a, um, a review of a book by Thomas Sowell, the, um, the, the, the amazing American uh, academic and thinker. And, uh, Thomas Sowell, of course, is, is, uh, is black and, uh, um, and, and quite conservative. And there was this review of a, a book of his, I think it was Society and His Discontents. It was published on the LSE uh, um, book review site a few years ago. And it has what I think of as being the best correction of any correction ever published. Uh, because uh, uh, this review takes a just runs straight at Thomas Sowell. It's all bigotry. It's all disguise. Bigotry. It's all wolf. You know. It's all. Not, uh, it's all uh, uh, dog whistles. Dog whistles. Not wolf whistles. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all dog whistles. And uh, and and all this. But but at the, but at the bottom of this full frontal attack on Thomas Sowell is a little errata thing at the bottom, which says an earlier version of this article um, included the phrase, that's easy for rich white man to say. <laughs> <laughs> the reviewer hadn't even looked at the dust jacket, it turned out. Um, but, but I say this because there is this amazing, amazing thing where people get told they're not black if they have the wrong politics, just like some people are told they're not gay if they have the wrong politics, and some people are told they're not women if they have the wrong politics, because, because of course you would expect 50% of the species to have entirely lockstep <laughs> views. Um, and uh, this, is, this is brute politics. This is nothing more. This is, this is using identity groups as a battering ram for political gain. And I think it's 
it's disgusting, but we need to call it out. But the other group, so the final group on that is, and this is the one I, in a way I want to most address, is young people who believe this for perfectly good reasons. As in, you know, you're starting off in life, you are told that you live in an incredibly oppressive society. You don't have, as we don't have when we're growing up, much sense of historical comparison to make. Uh, you do tend to believe the things you're told by authority figures. And if the authority figures tell you that you live in an unbelievably patriarchal, racist, cis, sexist society and so on, then you'll sort of imbibe that. And then you're told, you know, to find meaning in your life, you should fight against that and, and take on those forces and you should triumph over them and you should, you should, you should destroy them. I can see the attraction in it. And one of the necessary tasks, I think, will be to try to de-escalate those people and re help them reorient their lives onto lives of greater meaning. Do you think part of this is the fact that we do live in a society where, you know, people talk about intergenerational unfairness. We live in a society mm. post the crash, for example, yeah. where it's very difficult, and I've been saying this for a while now, to expect young people to be capitalists when they don't have a chance of having the one form of capital that historically ordinary people have ever had, which is to own their own home. If we live in that society, I think it's going to be quite difficult to de-escalate and convince young people now that mm -hmm. they they don't live in, a, in that kind of society because if they look around, they feel like, well, maybe, maybe life is unfair in this way. Yeah, yeah the, uh, I say this in the introduction that it's not clear why people who don't have any ability to accumulate capital will love capitalism. It's not clear why... Um, well, it is clear to me, however, why... If you don't think you, for instance, ever have a chance of owning a flat, an apartment, you might find uh, um, an ideology which claims that it can solve every inequity on earth <laughs> has an appeal. Mm. You know, I, it's, it's obvious what the appeal could be. Um, and I don't particularly blame people for falling into that, at least for a period. I think they should fall out of it if they can. But, but yes, I mean, the, 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 the assumption, you know, Historically, I think we've all understood, haven't we, that if the economics goes bad, other things go bad in quite fast order. And one of the things I think I try to show in the madness of crowds is um, the economics went bad and we sort of pretended that that wouldn't have consequences. But I think that among the consequences of it is that Bad ideas that were waiting in the wings flooded into the system because our immune system was low. And we are, we are suffering for that. You know, all this stuff, when I started reading a few years ago, the sort of, the basics of what we now call intersectionism, the, the academic bases for it, I assumed I'd find you know, impenetrable, badly written, not that well argued, but serious texts. No. I mean, one of the most prominent foundational texts of intersectionism is, uh, is by Peggy McIntosh. It's called Unpacking the Knapsack. And I urge people to have a look at it because it's a few pages long and it is just a list of assertions. It's not even an argument. It's a list of assertions. And that's where our idea of white privilege comes from, just from yes. that little essay. Yeah. yeah. I thought at least they'll have really tried to work this out and before they try to impose it on every society on earth. <laughs> I'd have thought they'd have, they'd have done a bit of work. 
there isn't that much work to it. And, and, but, and as I say, that was, that was sort of, that, this stuff was lying there in the wings, but it's only in the last 10 years that it comes whooshing through. And then in the last five years, and you can, you can show this in online activity, among other things, in the last five years, it becomes absolutely, the, you know, the, the weaponized tool of politics. And, and that did surprise me. But as I say, it, it's happened for what I think is a clear historical reason. Um, which is that we were vulnerable to such a movement. Why? Well, this, I mean, we couldn't be the first human beings in history who had no explanation for what we should be doing on Earth. I mean, you can get by with that. In my view, you can get by with not having an explanation for what to do, so long as the economics are going quite well. Mm-hmm. As long as basically you're always getting richer and, you, you know, every generation's richer than their parents. And, and there were various ways around that, that we sort of coped with for a while or put out there for a while, such as, well, it's true, it might be harder for this generation to get on the housing ladder than their parents, but they've got iPhones. Hmm. Some of that might do it. Some of it clearly doesn't. But, but this thing about meaning, about what are we actually doing, you can have the distractions you can enjoy yourself. God knows I'm not being a Puritan about this, but that's probably not enough. And so anything that has an appeal to meaning has a good chance in such an era. And here is, here is probably the, it's not a great idea system, the intersectional social justice warrior identity politics system. It's not a great idea system. But it's probably the the most ambitious and plausible one to come up since the end of the Cold War. Um, there hasn't been a sort of another newish idea. You maybe green uh, um, ideology and you know, green politicking and green meaning. But other than that, there's not much else that's washing around. So I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's become so successful because it appeals primarily to the emotions, to the heart? Like in certain instances, we all feel cheated. Yeah, we all feel looked over. We all feel frustrated. And if somebody comes along and offers you a very, very simple solution to that, it's because you're black, gay, whatever it is, hmm. it, it's easy to go along with. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the way in which this era, I think we talked about this a little when we last met, this era aspires to go down. <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating thing isn't it, that, that we, we talked about, it, I think, last time in terms of, you know, the wanting to be insulted, <laughs> yes. wanting to be like, oh, my God, have you seen what I get on Twitter? Oh, you know, I have to lie down. Uh, and that there's no particular advantage to heroism, whereas there is of being a victim, you know. And, um, and, and, and this, this sort of downward aspiration is, is it, it's a number of things. But one is obviously one is obviously that it's it's a it's a it's a flag sent up to ask the mob to pass over you. You know, I think there's some survival mechanism in some of this, which is really fascinating. Um, I talk about this in the book in terms of the cuttlefish, um, which uh, fascinated me. I was having this discussion with I was one of the, the chapter on women is to some extent the one that probably. Well, may get me into most trouble. <laughs> uh, um, Surprise! Be- yeah, because, <laughs> because I mean, the trans one is already getting me into some trouble for saying, in a really, as I think, an honest and um, 
and humane way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to just insult you or anything. I'm well, actually, before you go on, that's what, one of the things that struck me about the chapter on trans. Anyone who, who, who would read your critics, mm. uh, Douglas Murray's this right-wing bigger, blah, 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 mm. I think would be quite shocked by how compassionate yeah. and mm. thorough and careful you are right. to delineate a lot of these things and to show that you are actually trying to understand why yeah. people may choose to transition That's ra right. rather than just dismissing this whole thing, oh, yeah. these people, what, what mental illness, whatever. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I've spoken to a lot of people and I've read a lot of people's testimonies and accounts and I do try very, very carefully, I want to say salami slicing, but it's not quite the right metaphor, but, but, but I want to just carefully trace what is plausible and what is dementing in the mm. demand because at the moment they're all put in the same thing so that somebody born with genital abnormalities uh, is put in the same uh, category as you know say the big bearded man with a penis is a woman or or you're a bigot and that's not fair it's not a fair to the fair to the first group uh, just to begin with so yeah i do try I, I try really hard to in all of these cases to, to to look at what the plausible bit is and then say what are we leaning too heavily on and what are we pretending we know about which we really don't know about and i think i think there's two there's twin problems which i try to identify in this book and, and to answer which is we have in our society the problem of pretending we know about things that we don't really know about and I put the trans one in there. We pretend mm. to be really sure now, and we shouldn't be sure because we're not. But the flip side of that is we also pretend not to know about things we all knew till yesterday. <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, maybe, maybe we're not allowed to say this, but because this is three men talking, and obviously men shouldn't talk about women because what interest could men have in women? <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, a lot of the stuff about the relations between the sexes, it's complicated, but it's not that complicated. We all, there are a load of things we pretend we don't know, which we knew till yesterday, and we could do with remembering. And I, as I say, I think some of this might get me into most trouble because there's a lot of women who have quite enjoyed the overcorrection um, and quite enjoyed not looking at some of the, let's say, more more difficult things that we actually need to think about. Um, what's what's the forgotten knowledge? You know. Anyhow, but to get back to my cuttlefish. Well, I was hoping for, for the, the bit that's going to get us demonetized. I think you, you were going there. I, we were there. We were there. We were there. Yeah, we were there from the start. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, um, but seriously though, on on the men and women thing, I. I it's one of the. It's been the, one of the staples of comedy throughout yeah. the decades. Uh, the differences between men and women. But yeah, like a man who's a bit of a klutz. Yeah, a man. The man who can't. The the pathetic, silly man who can't do the stuff, and the woman has to show him. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Oh, the exciting thing about that in comedy is that is once hack. Now that's groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. go on stage. The difference between men and women. There's a tension in oh. the air. Can you say it? Can you not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't know where we stand anymore. It's very yeah. exciting. But it is it very is. interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Particularly for, for both of us, because we live with women. It's like uh. you go home and you suddenly, even if you bought into all this crap, you go yeah. home and you go, no, no. We're yeah. not exactly the same. No. We think about things very no. differently. We have different attitudes. And we if you have a son and a daughter, you'll notice yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but 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 yes, I mean the the. Uh... But what are we not talking about there, Douglas? Just oh, give us well. a few juicy details. Huh. Um, how about this one? We 
everything in everything in in, in the uh, ideology we've been imbibing relies on the idea there's only one for well firstly that power is the single most important thing in the world and uh, it's a means through which you understand everything and uh, i think we got this through a version of foucault and other things and really ugly reading of the past and indeed of the present power is the one thing that matters the one means by which we understand the world i think this is wrong because as i've probably said to you before i think that for most people, if you said to them, what's the thing in their life that matters most, they'd probably say love. Mm. Mm. Or some version of that. Uh, my husband, my, my wife, my children, my family, my, my God, my, what, you know, all sorts of things. But there are very few people, unless you've got an absolute maniac in front of you, would say power. Well, then yeah. that would be the thing that would tell you they're a fucking maniac. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's a, it's, it's a dementing thing for a society to take a maniacal view and assume it's true. Um... And uh, so, that, so that's the first thing. But the one, f but so the first thing is we, we we have this idea that power is the thing. But then, secondly, we've fallen into this thing that there's only one real type of power in the world, and it is white heterosexual male power, mainly old. Um, now, of course, we all know some of the ugly things that that leads to, such as the presumption that you know the unemployed steel worker in the north of England is just unbelievably privileged and powerful, <laughs> you know, and can be lectured to by a millionaire so long as they are black or a female or gay and the power structure is still that way around. Um, but one of the things I address in the chapter on women, which is, as I say, I mean, this is, 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 um, is when all men get nervous, but what if there are other types of power? Hmm. Like, what if what if there are types of power that only women wield? Mm. What if they actually have more power? <laughs> <laughs> and okay, not in every situation, in some situations. And you know, one way I might refine this is to say, again, you just got to hope people recognize this because if they don't, you're toast. Um, but is there any form of male power, any form of legal male power? Equivalent to the power that a very attractive woman in her late teens, early 20s has when speaking to a man two to three times her age. Um, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. Why? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a fact, it's, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is a fact. I'm sure. We all, we all know it because we've all seen it. Mm. Mm. Okay. How, how about like a CEO, the, the epitome of white male mm. power? Mm wealth, mm. uh, with two people in front of him, one an incredibly beautiful, attractive woman who knows how to use it, and the other one a man with not much in the looks department. Mm. Do we actually think that the powerful male looks at these two people in exactly the same way? Do we think that no woman knows what she might have in that scenario and none of them have ever weaponized it or would seek to weaponize or use it in any way i don't think so i think we all know that there are things you can do i don't think by the way there's almost any male equivalent of that a very successful woman in her 50s is much less likely if meeting a hot guy in his early 20s, let alone late teens, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
to risk everything in her life and career mm. in order to have a few minutes of fun. Mm. Like, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. Mm. And it doesn't have to be that sinister either. I mean, my wife and I, for example, whenever we need to go and talk to someone to get a favor or whatever, she'll always go and do it because she's right. going to have a better yeah. time of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Would you mind you know, yeah. speaking to him because I think it'll come yeah. out better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's just a fact. And it's not necessarily a sinister form of power. No. It's just how human beings relate to each other based on our sexual evolution that's what that's the human beings that we are are you gonna are we gonna pretend that's not the case right but but it's amazing that this narrative has been created and we all know that parts of this narrative or a lot of it are false and yet we we talk about this fear constantly about exposing the narrative yes and and the dementing thing is it's in front of us all the time Mm. um and particularly i mean i want to say some of this stuff and explain some of this stuff and write about some of this stuff because I know how difficult it is, for instance, for a young heterosexual male to do any of it. Mm. Uh, and I think it needs to be done in a way on their behalf um, to make it easier. Um, but, you know, we have this thing at the moment where a young man is assumed to be the one wielding power in any relationship with a woman, that the woman has no power and that a set of things happen which I think are impossible to do. I mean, one of the things I do through this book is, what are the impossible demands that are being asked of us? And one of the impossible demands, perhaps one of the, in some ways, one of the least significant, because I mean, there are some of them that are total. Uh, but one of the, one of the demands that's, that's, that's still important is, um, I should be able to be sexy without being sexualized. And that's, that's a really interesting modern... Uh, uh, demand. Because actually, we all know that basically, if you're being sexy, you're in the sex game somehow. You're, you're in, you're playing with a thing you know about, the other party knows about it. Doesn't mean the other party can do whatever they like, obviously not. But the stuff is in the air. Now, the current thing is that if a woman puts that in the air, the man is barely allowed to respond unless the woman gives the absolutely clear sign and indeed explicit sign that that is what is being asked for. Now, I um, I go into this in the book via the perhaps surprising route of Nicki Minaj. <laughs> um, and I'm told, by the way, that people who've bought the audio book for this, which I did myself, are particularly pleased with my recitation of the works. <laughs> the works of... The works. The of, of, of Miss Minaj. That's worth paying for to hear you yeah, do the Kim yeah. Minaj lyrics. Um, I don't sing them, I should say. <laughs> uh, but even the reading of them. Uh, no, um, but I, uh, I, uh, I find this fascinating because there's, there's one video in particular of hers called Anaconda, which really shows this demand that's being made. Uh, she crawls on all fours towards a very handsome young black guy sitting in a, in a chair. She does a kind of lap dance for him. She does everything. It's more than the lap dance. It's not just a, like a, you know, stripper bar thing. It's a, uh, uh, it's a full-on, you know, demonstration to him that she is in the sex game. Her legs are around his neck and she's twerking her... her bottom at him his face and all this stuff and towards the very very end he's clear he wants to touch her and then at the very very end he puts one hand on her hip she turns whips around smacks him away and walks off it's i 
I will play the sex game as much as I like, and you have no right, unless I ask you to, to even put a hand like that. But that's that's dementing for the male. I mean, it is actually saying to the male, well, summed up in the words, "Make him drool." I have a um, I have an interest in these memes that that we all know about, but which、yeah. we pretend we don't. Make him drool is a particularly fascinating one because you can you can see this online. There is no male equivalent. If you do, if you type "make him drool" into Google, and this is a, this is a well-known sort of theme meme.、Uh, derange the man, to make the man mad with desire for you. Whether it's、uh, high heels or you know famous examples of lipstick and all sorts of other things, all sorts of、uh, ways to do this. But make him drool is a recognised meme. By the way, if you t- if you type "make her drool," <laughs> I mean the very idea that men were like, "God, I'm going to make her drool." Like, what how, you're going to iron your polo shirt particularly well? I mean, what, 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 what are you going to do?、Um, uh, the, the dishes. The, 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 the make her make, make her drool comes up with. How to stop yourself drooling in bed when you're asleep? <laughs> and, and one searches for cats that drool. <laughs> and the,、so、I'm, say, I'm not saying that there's no way of. For, obviously, there are ways for men to make women find them more attractive.、Mm. But it's not quite the meme of dement the woman.、Mm. We're not but, the same、mm. as the point, right? Yeah, but it's not also. I mean, there's a counter argument to this. Would be look, this is just a readdressing of the balance. Men have had it far too good for too long. They、mm. could. Get away with you know grabbing、sure. you know, a woman yeah, yeah. A, and nothing would ever happen. And、mm-hmm. now it's our turn to、right. feel a little bit of it. So th- this argument, I do hear it is it's an overcorrection, but we're due an overcorrection.、Mm. And this this goes on in the gay argument, and it goes on it goes on a little bit in the racial argument as well. Are we after equality or are we after better? In each of these cases, it's a really dangerous one. This I would argue. In each of these cases, we have wittingly or unwittingly gone to better. We think we're doing better for a time to make up for lost time to overcorrect. But my question to that is: How do you know when the overcorrection's gone on long enough, and who announces time?、Uh, How long do, for instance, young men have to be made to go through the overcorrection game in order to get back to the equality bit?、Um, and will the overcorrection industry be interested in saying, "Oh, time to that's it, we're、right. there, we're there"? Does everybody who benefited from the overcorrection voluntarily go back to equal? Uh, I mean, again, we have these ones that we've agreed. I, I, I again, I, maybe I can say this, but there's definitely a sense in the society in which gay is a bit better, a bit better, not in every way, not in every way, but a bit better. It's a bit cooler, a bit like oh, it's a bit different. It's a bit different. Not like the boring straight people who don't have anything to say for themselves in their straight way. What Douglas is saying, he's a lot cooler than us.、Yeah. I'm not saying I am. As it happens, I think this is almost a demonstration that, 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 that there are things that buck. That, 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 that,、uh, the exception that proves、yeah. the rule.、Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of the sort of gays are a bit more、uh, glamorous or interesting or talented、mm. or fabulous. That、mm. sort of thing.、Mm. 
not just equal, a little bit better in some ways, not in every way, but in this way. Now we have that with the women one. Uh, are women exactly the same as men or better? Now, we have, we're running several programs at once in our society. Women are absolutely the same and a bit better. How? Not small sources. Christine Lagarde, mm. uh, head of the IMF, repeatedly said in the decades since the crash that if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, it might not have happened. Why? Why? Either women are, have equal competence to men in the financial system, or they're different, or they're different and better. So which is it? Christine Lagarde, head of the IMF, keeps on pumping out this idea, they're better. We wouldn't have financial crashes if we had women uh, more prominent in finance. Uh, it's very hard to sustain all of these ideas in your head at the same time and not go a bit mad. Well, that's yeah. the point, isn't it? Because that, that her argument is actually one that I personally agree with, which is I think if we had more women in those industries in the top positions, right. because women are less, they're more risk averse right. on average, right? And there are other differences between men and women sure. on average. You may well end up with with a, a company behavior that is different if you have more yeah. women in those positions. But what that yes. requires you to accept, of course, is that men and women are different. Are different. And Great bit of virtue <laughs> signaling there, Constantine. I'm not sure that's virtue signaling. I'm going to get in trouble just yeah. for saying it. No, and, but, but, but also, I mean, the, it, again, if we got to that stage, you then have to work out, do we want less risk in the banking sector? And if so, is it the case that we need to pump women in in order to do that more? Um, what are the sectors where we need the... Pa I mean, this isn't a new motif, the idea of the pacifying female force to stop the rampaging male. But where are, for <laughs> instance, the occasions when we might need the rampaging male? You know, there must be times. Oh, loads. Yeah. Well, firefighters, you know, police right. officers, etc. Right. And we have all of these endless, painful, dementing campaigns to get more women in the fire service and... Uh, you know, uh, uh, persuade them that this is this is the career for them, and then we're just horrified at the fact that the stats don't seem to be going up in enough order. And and um, I just think it's it's it, again it's 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 a, it's it's something we know, it's something we can't talk about, and so we've decided to lie about. Mm. But but one of the interesting, I'm going to get onto cuttlefish if it kills me. <laughs> 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 Douglas, Douglas has been trying for 35 minutes yeah, to get no, to the no, country. No, no. But it's a great example, and yeah. I, do, well, I, do, because, I do want you to talk about because, it. Because I think is clever, the clever people, um, the socially advantaged people as well, you might say, work out how to get through dementing eras a bit faster and can do so and then lambast the people who didn't make it, you know, didn't catch up in time didn't alter their behavior and their language fast enough. And uh, uh, the, most, the, the clearest example of this, I would say, is in the behavior of males towards women in the sort of post-Me Too era. And uh, I, uh, when I was researching the madness of crowds, I had the great pleasure of speaking through some of the themes of it with a bewildering array of friends in a bewildering array of different disciplines. One of my favorite conversations was with a friend who's a biologist who um, just one day was describing to me uh, the behavior of the cuttlefish as a form of this, which is the mimic octopus as well. But the, the, the cuttlefish um, um, have an extraordinary um, 
interesting thing about them, which is that there, there is a type of cuttlefish where because the male to female ratios is bad, it advantages the females against the males. The, um, and because the females tend to go around with their male cuttlefish, it's hard for the male cuttlefish who are single, bachelor cuttlefish, you might say, <laughs> to... Um, incel, I think. Incel yeah. cuttlefish. No, no, no. These are, these, are not, these are not yet incel <laughs> cuttlefish. Yeah, yeah. They could become they, incel they cuttlefish. Yeah. But they have a strategy. Uh, and their strategy is that because the female cuttlefish is smaller than the male cuttlefish, uh, the male cuttlefish, in search of a bit of action, can pretend to, be, to assume the, the, the form of a female. And they, they become smaller. And because the woman is going around with her consort male cuttlefish, and the male cuttlefish is alert for other cuttlefish competition, um, they pretend to be smaller. They go around the female. The male thinks that they're not a threat. And by being small and diminutive, they get through. And then they have their wicked way. Mm. Now, <laughs> the, 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 the moment this friend said this to me, I just said, Oh my God, it's, I know so many men doing that. Yeah. I know so many men doing It's that. a creepy yeah. male feminist. Yeah, it is. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. This Absolutely. is a creepy male feminist. Yeah. And by the way, I had a very specific example of it. A colleague of mine, the spectator, Freddie Gray, uh, had covered the um, uh, pussy hat protests, the anti-Trump uh, protests, mm. the women's march, uh, just immediately after the inauguration in 2017. And he had told me uh, 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 that among very interesting things that happened that day, uh, and again, none of this is to say, you know, what people were complaining about, that Donald Trump wasn't, you know, didn't have any legitimacy, you know, uh, uh, or that he'd behaved like a perfect gentleman. You know, I think we can probably all agree uh, that wasn't the case. But uh, uh, what was interesting to me was what this colleague told me about something that happened at the end of the day, because there are all these young men uh, from the sort of, you know, Ivy League young men, among others, who are on the on the women's march, uh, and uh, there's a party afterwards uh, that this uh, colleague friend turns up at, and uh, all these men are standing around. I can't do the American accent, but uh, I can do the British equivalent, which is like, yeah, yeah, so totally like on board with this, like, yeah, <laughs> fuck Trump, uh, and they're all doing this, and like, yeah, yeah, totally, totally support, like, yeah, <laughs> uh, and that's when the women are around. Mm. And when the last woman leaves uh, this particular group to go off and get some beer, one of the other guys goes to the other, oh, my God, dude, I can't believe how much pussy there is in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's funny, isn't it? Like, uh, we have an example of it right now. Uh, We're recording this uh, in the moment of Justin Trudeau being... (laughs) Uh, being chased and harassed and whatever for... By the way, how much did he black up? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, it was almost just, a fetish at one point. We've got three on video already, but presumably yeah. they were just evenings he just sat at home, you know, <laughs> not on video, just enjoying a bit of blacking up. No. I mean, it's... Yeah. Well, he actually said he doesn't know how many times yeah, he's yeah, done it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you well, know, we've got everyone... I've been branding up all my life, so... Yeah, everyone's um, got to have a hobby, haven't they? But but the thing with, with that is that I put, you know dressing up as a lad into me I don't see what's racist about that I don't think, no sure. I don't think I think it's, I don't think we need to actually destroy tr- Justin no. Trudeau for that reason no. but the hypocrisy of it this woke chieftain of of the universe mm-hmm. being the guy who's being doing the blackface yes to me is 
an inevitable reality. Don't you find it might be evidence of the existence of God? We've all been searching for it. We've all been searching for it, and it comes in the form of Justin Trudeau blackface. Justice and karma, I love it. But actually, none of the three of us are believers, of course, but perhaps we'll be converted by this very incident. (laughs) (laughs) The iconography would be really confusing in future generations. Well, he does work in mysterious ways, so there we go. Guys, we wanted to tell you we're very excited to say we've got a new sponsor, which is HelloFresh. Indeed we have. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service, delivering fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your door. It is the easy, convenient way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every single time. Choose your favorites from 19 recipes every week. They have a whole range of options there for you, including recipes that are ready in under 20 minutes. There's family favorites, there's British cuisine, there's world cuisine. HelloFresh, we're offering trigonometry fans 60 pounds off four boxes. To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk, enter our special code, which is of course trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama. The fresh ingredients come direct from suppliers i.e. they've been picked by Constantine's family. You, you can tell Francis studied geography at a British school because he can't tell the difference between Russia and Romania. Doesn't matter, mate. Same thing. Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> and the great thing is, it's been pre-portioned for you. So there's no food waste, just like in my home country of Venezuela. The great thing with HelloFresh is that you're going to be able to choose from 19 different recipes every week. So there is something for everybody. You're going to be able to eat with your kids. There's going to be no fuss. Dinner time is going to be solved. Yeah, I really like the rapid box, which allows you to cook things in under under 20 minutes. Uh, But the great thing about HelloFresh as well is it actually allows you to open up your cooking range. So most households on average have about six recipes that they cook regularly. Uh, HelloFresh has up to 19, so you can kind of expand a little bit in terms of your cooking. And of course, they also don't have a fixed subscription, so there's no term. You can cancel, you can uh, skip weeks, you can change the size of the box, uh, you can change delivery address, you can do all kinds of stuff to suit your life. To enjoy delicious moments, head over to hellofresh.co.uk, choose your box, choose your delivery slot, and add your favorite recipes. Discover the easy way to get delicious dinners from scratch, and if you do that, you'll get sick abs just like me. HelloFresh are offering trigonometry fans 60 pounds off four boxes. To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk, enter our special code, which is of course trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama. Douglas, the one thing I'm worried about with this is is the backlash because it's mm. going to be a backlash sure. and it could actually be incredibly ugly. Yeah, I think so. I think the, I think I warn about this because, as I say, correcting the overcorrection, if that's what it is, as I think it is, means um, you, you could probably the best way to do it is to uh, argue and urge people to see what comes if this goes on. I think that's the case with the with the male female relations. Just like we we. We should be able to have a more reasonable discussion than we have. We should be able to remember things we all knew. Uh, we shouldn't end up in the sort of themes of things like believe all women. You know, um, we should we should try to get to a believe people if, if they appear to be telling the truth. Something like that would be you know place Salt to be. Salt fashioned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and and I think the one that's 
that's in a way clearest, the one I worry about most in a way, is the, uh, the race one. Because, uh, again, I mean, um, this is just a really hellish subject, but um, there, is, there is something very dark starting to go on with this. And it comes, I think you see the start of it in what is called whiteness studies. Whiteness studies is the only such study in the American Academy which studies something not in order to in some way celebrate it, but in order to destroy or denigrate it. It's a very, very sinister movement. It's been going on for a few decades now. And it, it comes out of forms of uh, uh, other forms of studies. But you see, gay studies came up because there was a feeling, I, I actually oppose all such studies. I, I, I don't think it, any of them have done that much good. And I think they've done quite a lot of provable harm. But gay studies, for instance, came up with the idea that there were authors who had not been focused upon because they were gay. They'd been sort of forgotten and that this could, this was a sort of forgotten. This was something that could deserve a, a light being brought and, and, and it being brought above the surface a bit more. And the same thing happened with, with black studies, that there were authors and others, figures from history, who've been overlooked because of the color of their skin and in an age of racism and in a racist age had not been able to get the, 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 the uh, uh, attention they deserve. Now, there is something in this, undoubtedly. But uh, once, you, once you get to a certain point where like, James Baldwin is just one of the great writers of the 20th century. And you, you wouldn't want him to be in a canon of black writers. You'd want him not even to be in a, a canon of American writers. You just want to be, have him to be in the canon of 20th century writers. Mm. Um, and, you know, again, there are lots of gay writers. Uh, it's not been, a, not been a paucity of them in history as it happens. Uh, uh, but you don't want them to be in the like the LGBTQ section. You, you want them to be in the everyone else. That's, so maybe there's a little bit of correction that was needed there in its day. But all of these things were designed to try to bring out something that had otherwise potentially been suppressed in some way and to celebrate it. All of them do that except for whiteness studies. And whiteness studies is explicitly an attempt to problematize being white. Oh, this is really toxic stuff. And I show in, in the chapter on race the sort of consequences. Because if you problematize any group of people, if, sorry, if you problematize any skin color, it means you are problematizing some people, the people who have that skin color. And you see this in the culture now, the use of the, of the term white as a derogatory term. <laughs> You see these ones with gammon and things like that, you know, hilarious, hilarious, you know, when racism is hilarious. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, people say, oh, well, you're probably just saying this because you're a white gammony, so-and-so. Uh, uh, no, I, I'm noticing it because it disturbs me and I don't like the tone of it. And what's more, I can start to see what's going to happen back because just as surely as with any group of people, if you say your skin color is a problem, there will be some people who will go along with that. And there will be a lot, and I would suggest the majority actually, who say, excuse me, excuse me, this is a hardware thing. It has nothing to do with my character or my life choices. 
It's neither good nor bad. It is a moral nothing. Just like I would submit the position we should be in on issues to do with sexual identity and issues to do with being a man or being a woman. It is not a. Di- it is not the way to look at me, and it doesn't say anything either good or bad. But with the whiteness studies thing, it pushes this idea: no, being black is better. Being anything is better than being white. And I just know already what's going to happen with this. Uh, you can see little glimpses of it. I give the example of the Harvard uh, uh, case of the. Asian students suing Harvard University for discriminating against them, but I, I see it from the fact that in the last, I'd say, three years in particular, everywhere in the world I go, I'm in a different country every week and have been for the last few years. Um, I travel very widely, and I get to speak. I'm very fortunate, but I get to speak to an awfully large number of people. One of the things I have noticed is that everywhere I go. There are people starting to ask questions about IQ, and it, it um, if it doesn't come up in Q and A, and it almost never does, then it comes up afterwards, or somebody afterwards in a pub or in a bar, somebody will ask about it, and I know what's happening, mm-hmm. and I say this explicitly in the book. I think this is a sign of the sort of grabbing for weapons ideological weapons to hit back at the problematization of whiteness. There, whatever, we don't need to get into it, but whatever view you take on the debate about IQ and hereditary characteristics, it's a really ugly, ugly thing. And just a hellish, hellish subject. And uh, David Reich at Harvard and others have explained very clearly why that is. But there are reasons why things come to the surface and become a bit popular at a particular time, let alone sort of everywhere. You know, as I say, when I started to notice it, I thought, why? Hmm. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this is what's happening. It is, it is saying, right, we're going to find the weapon nearest to hand that hurts you the most in our view, and we're going to wield that back. So I say, on this, as on all of these other subjects, Please let us step back from leaning on them this much. Let's let's try to go back to colorblind. Mm. Mm. Let's go back to race blind if we can. Let's go back to not caring about the characteristics if we can, because it's definitely preferable to what's coming otherwise. And can we go back? Is there a way to solve this? Because this is what I've been worrying about, and. You know, the, the fact that we're all in these tribes and in order Ooh. to be black, you have to be liberal. And if you're not, what, you know, woe betide you. Mm. Is there a way to go back? I tried to, towards the end of the book, I tried to explain what I think are some of the ways out. And I'm particularly concerned about this for what I said at the beginning was that third group of people. Young people growing up in this very confusing world, wanting to do good and thinking this is good. I'm very keen to try to encourage them out of this way of thinking. And so I try to give some of the examples of what you might do to try to get out of it. One of them, one of them is uh, to do, I have a chapter on this about forgiveness. And this is a really, this isn't a great subject for comedy, but it's a great subject. We, um, We live in a very, very unforgiving society. And, you know, some people talk about things like snowflakery and so on of the 
generation coming up. And I, uh, I think that, that it's slightly unfair and unkind. Mm. If you live in a world where acting in the world can come back at you at any stage and you never, ever have any mechanisms to be forgiven, you are going to fear everything mm. because everything is so damn dangerous. Every word is undoable, is unundoable. Every action is unundoable. And nobody wants to help you out. Nobody. And we all have a little bit of this. You know, when somebody errs and strays or does something terrible, we are inclined to forgive them if we already agree with them, if they are of our group or tribe or if they are of our political view. But when it happens with our opponents, we destroy destroy and make sure they never come back. That's why the Trudeau thing is actually quite a useful moment because I'm quite encouraged by some of the response, some of the partisan response which is saying, don't let's do this, but don't let's do back to him what we know he would mm. do to us. Mm. So it's true that if Donald Trump had repeatedly <laughs> oh, we, we were just talking about this yeah, yeah. before you got here yeah. Jesus wow, H. Christ the yeah. kind of I reckon uh, I reckon that an apology wouldn't have quite done it <laughs> if, if Donald Trump had said well you know I don't know how many times but sometimes I just used to put my feet up at Trump Tower and just black up <laughs> and Melania <laughs> I don't reckon that would just be there on the tambourine. Dead face, dude. I reckon. I reckon he'd have trouble in the Republican primary. <laughs> yeah. I, I reckon that the left wouldn't mm. let go of that. And um, so it's it's interesting because this could be an opportunity to try to pretend that Justin Trudeau is in fact a racist, mm. white supremacist, <laughs> KKK hood wearing. Uh, uh, um, uh, maniac and bigot. And a lot of Canadian politicians are doing that. Some are doing it, yeah. Mm. Um, the wiser ones will realise that this is a very important opportunity mm. to show magnanimity mm. in victory. Mm. To say, you wanted, you, Justin Trudeau, wanted to make us play these silly, reductive political games. And, you know, God knows there's reason enough to dislike the guy. Um, he, uh, you know, I mean, I still think that that moment a few years ago when a, when a, a young woman in the audience oh. refers to mankind and he said, he, the president, the prime minister of Canada says, uh, I think you'll find we refer to, to humankind these days. I said, first of all, no, we don't, hmm. or almost nobody does. And secondly, so you're the prime minister and you're using the platform to sort of correct and sort of browbeat and, and mansplain. <laughs> uh, 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 some you know poor nice young woman is just asking a question you know I mean like have some decency some just basic you know I mean there's a power dynamic that's gone wrong anyhow but the point at such a point whenever that guy gets this wrong by turning out to have a bit of a thing for doing blackface <laughs> <laughs> I just I can't believe our luck still but, <laughs> but it, it, you know it, we could do the dishonest thing to him that he would do or we could say okay Let's use this as an opportunity to learn about how we could have a better, better thing going forward. And I, I give this example with the, with the, in the forgiveness chapter with the, how do we, how do we, 
How do we try to read other people's words, including the words of people who we might disagree with, in a more honest light?、Mm. We've had this thing. I may have said to you before. We've had this strange thing in our society in recent years. Writers, comedians, and others used to operate on the basis that we spoke and acted in a way that no honest critic could honestly misrepresent.、Mm. And then we entered at some point in recent years this era in which we had to try to speak and act in a way in which. In in, a, in such a way that no dishonest person couldn't dishonestly misrepresent <laughs> our actions, and that can't be done.、No. Or at least it can't be done without driving yourself mad. And so we need to we need to work out how, with our opponents as well as our allies and friends、mm. and and so on, actually behave in a more reasonable manner. And I, by the way, just a quick example. I had a I had an example of this the other day. Somebody told me uh, uh, that uh, it was a social, some social thing. It's quite wi- a very wide array of people of different backgrounds, all that sort of thing. And somebody said to me, who happened to be、um, happened not to be white themselves, said that somebody at the same thing had referred to that the you know you know the, the colored girl、uh, um, mm. like this. And this this uh, uh, this friend mentioned this to me and was clearly just sort of like.、Um, Do you think he was being a bit? You know, do you think he's a bit racist? And I didn't know the person well, but I said from my little interaction with him, I said, "I, I no, I wouldn't. I don't think so."、Mm. And and I sort of we sort of talked about it a bit because it was interesting that I said to her, "Well, I reckon he's just of that generation where、mm. you still said." Coloured people,、mm. not people of colour, which I think is a distinction without much of a difference. But you know, fine. You know,、um, he probably didn't get that memo. And why don't we assume he just misspoke and doesn't know the latest thing, but doesn't hate black people?、Mm. Why don't we assume that、mm. rather than? Oh my God! There was a racist incident at that party. <laughs> and I just think that's probably for all of us a more. That doesn't mean you don't call out bigotry when you actually find it, but、mm. we should we should probably try to find a more reasonable way along those lines. Well, so so much of it is about intent. I had a, an incident very much like that at my comedy club, which I run.、Uh, after a show, which I book,、uh, a, a, an older gentleman came up to me, and he said, "Oh, I loved the first act that you had on, the, you know, the coloured chap." And 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 I thought about it. Yeah. In this modern way, and then I went. Well, hold on. What is his intention there? Yeah. His intention is quite clearly to yeah, compliment yeah. this person and their performance. Right. They just haven't been updated on、yeah. the language. Yeah. And this is what I don't understand: is when did racism stop being about what you said, which is hating black people,、right. and became this failure to comply with the linguistic code issued two weeks ago by the the commissariat? Do、yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I think. Well, obviously, it, 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 the most. Common explanation is that it's being done by people who want to win、mm. on something else, and it's very much the left,、uh, the vanguard of this. So I, I'm、yeah. on the left, and you know, I'm a trade union member, former teacher, all the rest of it, and I've just been driven to despair by their、mm. behaviour. Yeah, We're yeah, the yeah. worst side a lot of the time. Yeah, it's 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 a horrible it's a horrible thing to see this.、Um, and as I say, we we need to like lean back from. What we're trying to lean into at the moment, I—I、uh, I mean, here's a tricky one to say, but why don't I do it anyway?、Um, you know, I—I I grew up in London in the '80s, and London was already very diverse. And 
I, I, maybe, you know, we're never the best analysts of our own actions. But when I look back, I can say with absolute honesty, I didn't think skin color was of any significance. Mm. Mm. Uh, in fact, I remember my, my, uh, one of my parents telling me that one of my grandparents was um, rather struck once by mentioning that, you know, I was in primary school or something, and that when I was, uh, I had mentioned a friend to this grandparent, and he said, well, which, which, um, which friend is that? And I t- t- tried to describe that when I was describing this girl, I didn't at any point say she's black. Mm. And he was just very struck by that, mm. that it was like, oh, you know, I was like, you know, the girl with, with black hair that, you know, and glasses or something. Yeah. But, but it didn't, that wasn't. So very I woke think, of you. Totally well, I know, pre-woke. <laughs> pre-woke. pre naturally woke. But my point is that if you grow up like mm. that, you don't mm. think it's mm. that, that it, you know, is of any importance or that interesting. So I, I sort of particularly resent the re-racialization of society because I think it is making everybody notice things. Mm. And let me give you an example. Um, you know, uh, Martin Amis once said that he, his, his father, Kingsley, was a little bit anti-Semitic. And Martin Amis once said that he said to his father, who was a self-confessed slightly anti-Semitic person, What's it like being mildly anti-Semitic? <laughs> and uh, Kingsley Amis said to, to his son Martin, "Well, you know, it's nothing. It's nothing very serious." But uh, he said just things like, you know, he said, "I watch the television, and uh, you know, when the credits roll, you know, I look at all the names. I go, oh, there's one." <laughs> and, <laughs> now, again, I mean, now we know where Jeremy Corbyn gets his <laughs> ideas from. <laughs> I mean, you actually, you have to know, uh, if you grow up around a lot of people and none of them are Jewish, you wouldn't know. Or if you grew up with a lot of people and some of them were Jewish, you, it's the likelihood that you just wouldn't notice mm. that. And I, I remember, again, I mean, it took, I was quite old before I knew what a particular name would be that, that would probably denote that the person was Jewish. You know, I mean, because it, it wasn't a thing. Mm. Now, the reason I mention this is because increasingly in recent years, the way in which race has been weaponized, I notice that everybody is becoming a little bit like that thing that Kings of the Amis was trying to describe. Mm-hmm. So people now take the advertising thing. All adverts have mixed race couples mm. and the children are black or mixed race. And... It's a very common meme in advertising. In fact, if you have an advert where there's no one, everybody's white, like that company is going to be in serious trouble. And the the thing is, it makes perfect sense in one way, because first of all, you're trying to reflect an increasingly diverse society. And secondly, you you know, you want to sort of show people, look, this is normal to have, you know, mixed race marriages, which it is, and so on. But there's something sometimes about it where you go oh can't just lay off it a bit you know where you can predict exactly what they're going to do in terms of the racial quota for the advert mm. and i just notice that everyone ends up noticing race mm. yeah and it's because it's something we didn't notice strangely enough by trying to correct it in this way we all notice it and i just speak for myself i think it's horrible yeah yeah i just think it's horrible. You used a very interesting example in your book with the Google searches. Oh, yeah. If you... Google, that's terrifying. People can do it themselves at home. 
Uh, although maybe uh, if enough attention is paid to it, Google will change the algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I discovered whilst I, was, I spent some time in Silicon Valley whilst researching this book, and um, uh, you know, I got very interested in this thing called machine learning fairness, which is MLF is uh, um, how you. Assuming because human beings I do have some instinctive prejudices and biases and so on, and if you're programming, uh, you don't want to uh, put your biases into the program. So if it is the case that most physicists historically have been men, you don't want all physicists that come up on the search to be men because mm -hmm. that might suggest to a young woman who might want to be a physicist, if she searches that she can't be because they're all male in the physics business. So... The good bit of this problem is you, you don't want to put off people with a competency and an ambition from doing whatever they want. Mm. The problem is that the MLF thing comes up with some very weird things with history. It produces, for instance, uh, uh, surveys of the past that are just not reflective of the past, which mm. suggests, for instance, that Europe was basically a highly multicultural society throughout you know, the last millennium, which is just, <laughs> it's just, it's just not the case. I mean, you might, people might wish it's the case or not wish it's the case, but it just, it just wasn't the case. But there is something which I identify, which is machine learning fairness plus some human agency, and it clearly happens with Google image searches. So that, and as I say, try this at home, uh, uh, um, search for uh, gay couples on Google Image Search, and you get lots of happy, healthy gay couples. Some of them are men, male couples, some of them are female couples. And there's an awful lot of adoption and you know, uh, children as well, just to show happy gay families sort of thing. But they're basically you know, sort of nice, cute, sexy, sweet couples. Do straight couples, and you get gay couples. A lot, a lot. This gets darker. Um, do black couples or black families, and you get lots of nice photos of nice, happy, healthy um, black couples and black families. Do white couples or white family. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't get it. You get a lot of uh, black couples, interracial couples. You get... Um, a lot of gay couples. You'll, you'll, if you type white couple, you will get a black gay couple. Why? Silicon Valley has decided that only a bigot would be searching for white couples or straight couples. And they're saying, fuck you. Mm. Fuck you. We'll show you. We'll show you. We'll taunt you. We'll dement you. We know what you're about. Bigot. Now, the thing about this is, like, we, didn't, we don't know this is happening mainly. And it's only a sped up version of something that is happening elsewhere in the media and politics. And I lay that out. The slow version of it is happening elsewhere. The fastest version is the online one. But this, again, this is dementing. This is, and this is very, very bad for a society to unwittingly be imbibing a very distorted picture which selects groups of people who do not deserve to have the thing they might be searching for, but deserve instead to be punished and demented and told they can't access it. And again, Asian couples, you'll get happy Asian couples. The Asians deserve to see happy Asian couples. <laughs> but that's not the case with everyone. Why? Because we know in Silicon Valley that there are some people who are bigoted and we know who they are and we're going to get them.
Well, it's almost like the tech companies have an agenda for us. Yeah. We wouldn't know anything about that, obviously, on the show, Douglas. On this highly demonetized <laughs> show. Yes. I mean, you'll probably, for this show, you'll have to like, pay them money. You'll, yeah. you'll get money taken from your bank accounts and given to YouTube in order yeah. to Douglas, allow you this. As our time always is with you, it's such a pleasure. We would be prepared to pay it on this occasion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, thank flatterer. You. <laughs> Just the truth. Uh, you, you speak about the importance of truth, and I'm giving it to you unvarnished. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. The last question we always ask is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about that we should be talking about? I know it's weird to ask you, given you've just written a whole book about things that we should be talking about, but uh, give us something. Last time you said it was your book, so we've talked about your book yeah. for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the thing we should be thinking about is that, that one I, I raised earlier, which I've tried in recent days to put out there a bit and with, with a lack of success with some of my opponents in this discussion, but I really urge them and everyone else to think about it. What, what, would, what would overcorrection look like and when would you know and who would call it and how could we get back to equal? How could we escape better and get back to equal on all of these rights issues? It's got to be possible and we've got to think about it. And so we should work out what the warning signs would be that we've overreached and work the way, work out the way back to basically having the equalities that most of us want and then get on with doing better and more interesting things with our lives and more meaningful things. Because it's just not going to be good for this generation to be playing these games of privilege. There is so much for them to do and so much good that can be done. And I think we should be getting on with that. I think that's a very good message to leave mm. the interview on. Thank you so much for coming on. Make sure you get The Madness of Crowds. It's an absolutely brilliant book. We both really enjoyed it. We will see you very soon. Uh, and leave us a nice review. iTunes, spread the word. Bye-bye.